Proctor, here are some announcements before we get into this episode. Closure D will be held in Berlin on the 11th of June, 2020. Closure D is a closure conference with national and international speakers. Talks will cover big data processing, asynchronous and reactive programming, closure script, and many other topics. The conference will be held in English. Tickets will go on sale in February, and the call for proposals is open now through March 4th. Visit closured.de, that's closured.de, for more information and to submit your talk. Lambda Days 2020 has been pushed back until the 28th and 29th of July. Taking place in Krakow, Poland, and online, two Lambda Days tracks will be run as a hybrid tracks combining both an in-person and virtual experiments. Lambda Ladies, Lambda Days wants you. For every Lambda Lady in your group, everyone gets 10% off the price up to 50% off the entire order. Visit lambdadays.org to register and to find out more. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to show support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that is how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com slash fngeekery. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you are enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guest at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Claude Rubinson. Claude, would you mind introducing yourself? Hi, my name is Claude Rubinson. I am an associate professor of sociology at the University of Houston downtown. And you're a sociology professor, so you want to give some background as to why you think you might be on a functional programming podcast as a sociology professor? Because that's not something people usually associate the two with. No, I think that's probably true. So I've been using computers my entire life, and I took a short sort of diversion into coding and programming for a few years professionally. But for a number of decades now, I am a Unix person and I use Unix in my work and I use programming to really puzzle through a lot of the problems that I have. Um, it's a way that I work through the questions that I'm working on. And a few years ago, I had some software that was written in Python, and I was having more and more problems with Python in, in, for various reasons. And then I got tenure, and I had the opportunity to sort of sit back and think about rewriting the software. And I did sort of a long exploration into different programming paradigms that I thought might help me work through some of the problems that I was having. And on the other side of it, I came out working with functional programming and OCaml in particular. So what did that exploration look like? Where did that start? Like if you're on Python, 
to know that again, you have you have some software background, but to know that I might need to look at a different paradigm versus I just need to maybe do a different language kind of thing. What was the spark that put like I need to really broaden and not just like oh it's just another language that I need to pick and the problem is Python and not necessarily an approach to Python that I might be taking kind of thing or an approach that Python lends me towards. That's a good question. And at this point, I'm realizing I'm not sure I can reconstruct the whole process by which I landed on OCaml. I've always been pretty widely read. I read a fair amount on programming and and programming languages and programming language design. You know, certainly, you know, I've dabbled in Lisp. So I know sort of functional programming has sort of been in the background for a long time. And when I would read various authors, I think, you know, Larry Wall talked about, you know, learning different languages and language uh, paradigms. And, and, and then he had sort of some tagline on there that was something like, and you should probably learn a functional programming language just sort of for good measure. Right. And it's sort of a throwaway. But I was like, well, that sounds interesting. And I knew that I didn't want just a different syntax or just sort of a, a, a simple alternative to Python because I had, I had sort of coded myself into a corner using it and it couldn't do what I needed it to do, or at least it couldn't. I couldn't make it do what I needed it to do. Because one of the things to understand is I'm not a full-time programmer. I'm a part-time programmer. I live in the Unix shell. And so I know Bash pretty well. I know grep set and awk. I use awk I love and I use it all the time. But for sort of larger projects, it comes in fits and starts. And I've never taken a comp sci course, <laughs> those type of things. So I needed a language that I could sort of deal with and, and that would do what I needed it to do. And so Python wasn't working. And I started yeah exploring these different alternatives and reading different books and then started listening to podcasts because I had a fairly long commute where I would take my kid to daycare and then I'd have to go to work and then I have to pick them up. And I live in Houston, so there's always terrible traffic. And so one of the podcasts I started listening to was yours. And I spent a fair amount of time just trying to understand what is functional programming. So there are a handful of uh, podcasts out there on functional programming. And, and I think I listened to all of them. And I did that for probably a year. <laughs> trying to sort of understand the philosophy behind it. And I, and I would sort of download a language and take a look at it and that type of thing. But I was more just trying to understand the philosophy behind it. And at a certain point, it, it, it clicked for me. And I realized that the functional paradigm is very, very nicely aligned with the Unix paradigm. And once I saw that, that made me very happy. And then it became more an issue of trying to figure out of the different languages out there, which one seems like it'll work with what I want to do. And that's how we met was I got invited down to the Houston FP user group during COVID because it's 
hey, all the user groups are going online. And it was reached out and like, well, you want to talk about the podcast and some of this stuff? And you were there and I, I kept it informal. I was like, yeah, I don't mind doing something informal and like answering anybody's questions. And you were the one, you were one of them with a bunch of questions. And then I find out that you were a sociology professor at the universe, at a university. And you're like, you are not essentially any kind of the necessarily target audience of someone that I was hoping to be reached, but you are the exact audience that I also hope to reach as well for those who are interested in trying to keep things accessible and just like, oh, here's different ideas across everywhere, which is why I wanted to get you on is dig into that and your journey and how you learned and also share the things you've found learning coming from some software background, doing software and running analytics or something across studies. And I know there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of math and stuff, depending on which, prof- which group of professors are doing which kind of studies and things like that. And analyzing a bunch of numbers and data sets. Sometimes they go to R. Sometimes, as you mentioned, there's Python with big data sets. There's other kinds of tools with NumPy and things like that and po- Python. But just wanted to get you in and kind of dig into the lessons of something, essentially also the, so we can also take away and evangelize. Here's what works for functional programming. Here's something, again, it's an end of one, but here's stuff that helps for someone who's not even necessarily a computer scientist who's in, just tinkered with programming to go back and pick things up and understand. And like, here's how things click. Because now you're in OCaml, which has its own language that's shared with functional programming but also has its own terms, like some of the other functional programming languages. If I understand right, the modules are really considered functors, which is not the functor in the Haskell world and things like that. So kind of want to dig in a little bit to that journey in the things that you found were easy and clicked and the things that you're like, the functional programming community needs to do better because you've now taken over the functional programming user group. So you get to see helping to coordinate that People coming in talking about it as well for that group. And when I joined you online last week or so, whenever the last one was, the January one, it was, oh, we've got someone who's coming in completely new to software, picking up JavaScript and auditing and making notes kind of thing. And you're going to see this now from a flip side of someone who's come through, but also gets to hear and have some understanding, but also see bump up against other people are like, yeah, I've heard about this kind of thing. So I figure there's an interesting perspective there to dig into. So I would say that I'm an N of one and I work in small N research. So I'm totally good with, with maybe an N of one is a little small, but that's all right. So you covered a lot in what you just said. I'm, I'm wondering where do you want to start? Cause you talked about what FP could be doing better, what they're doing well, my own journey. I'm I'm curious about where should we start? I was thinking about that as I realized I was wrapping up the question without really giving a question. Let's start a little bit back with your previous software background. Since you said you did a little bit of stint and we're familiar with software. So you got the exposure. So you had enough that says, I understand software and I understand Unix. Let's start with a little bit of establishing that background, and then we can dig back into the 
now I'm listening to podcasts. Now I'm listening to this. Here's all the things I found. Here's the things I've read from books and things like that. But let's start with just a little bit of more setting the stage based off your background that you had with software before you jumped into. Now it's time for functional programming. So that would take us back over 20 years. So I was at the University of Georgia working on a master's thesis. And essentially, I wrapped up my coursework and essentially took a hiatus. Um, It was supposed to be just a short hiatus while I finished up my master's thesis. And instead, it turned out to be about five years. And during that time, I started working for a compensation analysis company. And I was hired because of my background in sociology and social research, because the big project that they would do every year is they would send out surveys to executives at software companies, software development companies, to essentially assess compensation and compensation practices. And then they would turn around and essentially write big reports and then sell it back to the same people so that you could remain competitive. And when I got there, we were working on the surveys and the CEO said, you know, this this internet thing, I I think it really is the wave of the future and we're going to put all of our surveys online. And there was a lot of hemming and hawing because the internet was still fairly new at this point. I remember Google emerged while I was at this company. I remember someone saying, hey, there's this new like, you know, web search engine, Google. It's so much better than Yahoo. And so we all switched to Google. And so the CEO then he tapped a couple of us on the research team and said, okay, you're going to do this. And so that's where I started learning. It was a Microsoft shop. And so I started learning active server pages, the original active server pages. And more importantly, I started learning SQL. And I ended up doing a lot of relational database design. So we had a sysadmin who was responsible for the IT infrastructure. We were a very small company. So we had one sysadmin, and and I think he had one assistant. And he also was the DBA, but I was doing all of the database design. And so to learn all of that. And I did that for a number of years. This was in Atlanta. Eventually, I moved to Berkeley, California, and I kept that job for about a year. I telecommuted. And this is right during the dot-com bust. And since our clients were software companies, our revenue shrank really, really quickly. So I ended up getting laid off during the dot-com bust. And I found some other work, and that was fine. When I was in Berkeley, I started... So and it, it was at that same time when I was working for this company that I also discovered Linux. And I was interested in that. And this is back in the day because you know we're still on like dial-up internet. You had to like order Linux CDs, right? And try to install it. And you, and, you know, and you had to build your own kernel and all of that. So when I ended up in Berkeley... Then I started attending the Berkeley Unix users group. And it was very informal. It was basically they would meet twice a month at a coffee shop and just hang out. No talks, no presentations. Maybe someone had something to demonstrate. Often no computers. But 
wicked, wicked smart people. And that's where I really learned Unix. And, you know, this is sort of in the heyday of O'Reilly Press. They're publishing all these wonderful Unix books. This is like I can remember when I found O'Reilly's Sed Knock book because I, I walked into back back then they had actual bookstores and I saw it and I was like, oh, let me find out what this what this is and what text processing is. And I immediately was like, oh, this is what I've been looking for. And so over those years, I got more and more deeply into Unix. And this is also when I picked up Python. I used it to solve some problems for different jobs that I had. I was running some surveys and I used Python to manage the surveys. And I ended up over time, sort of my master's thesis, I did eventually finish it. But when I finished it, it was written in LaTeX. And I think I did the analysis in R at that point. I know it started off in it must have started off in SPSS, um, but I think it probably finished up in R, and I know it finished up in LaTeX at that point. Then I decided to go back to grad school, get my PhD. I moved to Tucson, University of Arizona, and there is when I sort of went much more deeply into programming to deal with my own problems. Part of the issue that I ran into there was I was running Linux full time. And so if there wasn't software available to do the analysis I needed to do, I had to write it myself. This is where I, I started working with the man who became my PhD advisor, Charles Reagan. He invented a research technique called qualitative comparative analysis, uh, QCA. This is what I do, what I specialize in now. And it's based on Boolean algebra and set theory. And so when he's presenting it, like our first semester, I'm like, oh, this is a relational database, right? And so I got it. I was like, oh, I understand this. This makes sense. His software was only written for Windows at that point. So I was like, well, I have to write my own software so that I can run the analysis. And so I worked on that. I wrote a version in R at first, and then I, I had problems with that, and I rewrote it in Python. And I used that for a number of years. I still use that software. And this was also when I was in Tucson, I joined up with the Tucson Free Unix group. And they used to have sort of standard meetings with speakers and that type of thing. And I was like, well, I miss bug. I, I miss the Berkeley Unix users group and just hanging out. So I started organizing coffee hours. And so we did that. It was always a small group of people. It was nice. And then one day we decided, well, you know, what if instead of going to a coffee shop, we went to a bar and all of a sudden attendance exploded. And so it became much more popular once, you know, alcohol was involved. And I was like, oh, right. So that, that was a very important sociological lesson for me. Um, so I did a lot of work. I, I was in Tucson for uh, seven years, writing more software and, and working on my own QCA software. Then I came to Houston, where I am now, University of Houston downtown, and continued working on that software. But this is where I started running into those problems that I was, I was talking about. And so I, I was pretty active in the Houston Python meetup. And 
that has grown and grown and grown, right? That's exploded in attendance over the years. I was pretty active there, but I kept running into similar problems around distributing the software. Performance was a problem because the fundamental QCA algorithm is very computationally expensive. So I was running into real problems there and various other issues that we can, we can talk about. And so, yeah, after a number of years of sort of struggling with that, I took the opportunity. I said, do I want to keep fighting and trying and trying to sort of make this software work the way I want it to? Or given that my thinking has evolved so much on how QCA operates, should I take the lessons that I've learned in, in writing this sort of first version of the software? I guess it's the second version of the software because the R version was the first. But the second version of the software and think about rewriting it. And eventually I realized, well, you know, yeah, I have tenure now and I don't have real deadlines. And so... I can do that and it'll be fun. So you start thinking about functional programming as looking at the new paradigm. What was your first hint of this might be what I need? You said you kind of matched it up with the Unix philosophy. I've also heard it can match up with people who are familiar with SQL kind of thing where depending on the functional programming language, it's here's what you'd say you want and you let like SQL go and optimize the heck out of your thing. And it's like, to know what your SQL is going to do, you have to look at a, essentially a query trace or something and say, that looks nothing like I was going to do, but it gets the job done. All I just said, here's the kind of stuff I want. And I've heard people say functional programming is like SQL. If you're familiar with SQL, it's all, I've also heard the Unix stuff. Was there anything specific or was it just other various words of like where people kind of associate these things? You're like, well, I kind of grok SQL, like grok Unix. Let's look at functional programming, or was there something else? Kind of what was that spark of like why the functional programming paradigm? So, I think the seed of functional programming it was implanted in me back in Berkeley by one of the members of Bug. I don't remember what the problem itself was, but I had some programming problem. It, it was related to a loop that wasn't behaving correctly, and so I'm talking with one of my friends in the group. And he's super, super smart. One of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. And he very sort of like bluntly says, well, Claude, the problem is that you don't really understand recursion. And I said, what? And he said, well, you know, you can transform any loop into a recursive structure, vice versa, but you don't understand recursion. That's the problem. And that stuck with me. And so I do think actually that one of the reasons I got interested in functional programming was it's like, well, it's all about recursion. And I think I understand recursion at this point, maybe not perfectly, right? But um, yeah, so basically I, I wanted to learn recursion, I guess. Um, so you're saying recursion was stuck in your head. You just kept that cycle going. Until you can right. figure out how to break out of it. <laughs> what is what what is recursion? Well, what is recursion? I'm trying to think about the other how I recognize that this is something that would work for me. I was very attracted to the paradigm's simplicity. 
So one of the issues for me, because I'm a part-time programmer, I want the languages I'm working in to be pretty high level, right? And, and that's a Unix thing as well, right? That you're working at the command line and you have a small program, ideally does one thing and does it well, and you compose those together. And so I wanted something that was fairly high level like that. And at the same time, I, I, I needed it to be expressive enough for the work that I was doing. And I guess this is a place to sort of talk about a lot of the work that I'm doing. I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to figure out what the heck, what the heck am I talking about? <laughs> it's not like I necessarily know when I'm writing a program, what the output is supposed to be, because I'm really trying to puzzle through various questions about QCA and measurement and how we model the world in various ways. And so when you're talking about sort of similarities between SQL and functional programming, one of the things that I really use SQL for even though to run the analysis, I'm going to need just a straight data table, right? That has all the data in it. But when I'm collecting data, I always put it into a SQL database in part so that I can model it. And I work with the database to figure out, okay, so what are these entities that I'm thinking about? That's really, really useful for really thinking through my problem trying to figure out what's the ontology of whatever aspect of reality I'm trying to understand. I've done that for a long time at this point. And, and I don't know sort of how I stumbled into it because I don't think most social researchers work this way. But I've found it very, very useful to use programming languages as a way of imposing sort of rigor and rigorous constraints on my thinking and helping me to puzzle through these issues. And so once I started looking into functional programming languages, I was very attracted to algebraic data types, immutable data, Right. So this was an issue that I uh, always had a problem with in Python. And, and if I'd known better back then, I could have avoided it. But I had mutation and that really it made it hard to reason about my software. So I was very attracted to the idea of immutable data types. And yeah, so the functional programming languages seem to bring these different issues together for me. And the reason I ask is because when you say functional programming, the joke is you ask a thousand functional programmers, you're going to get a thousand, at least a thousand to one different answers of what that means. And so it's one of those things like, okay, so for someone who's not familiar is just tangentially even because that helps with things like boot camps. Like, okay, you've gone through a boot camp, but what helps you understand the appeal again, still N of one, but. People talk about like higher order functions. Well, sometimes you kind of need to feel like, yes, those are important once you get them, but you can't sell them until you've actually seen the problem of pulling something out or refactoring a loop because you're trying to understand a loop. And then like, oh, this is the same pattern over and over and over again. 
oh, I can just swap this out because you got to kind of understand what your factoring is to some extent. You got to understand how would you do, like, how would you substitute this out and do templating? Whereas like immutable data structures and things like that, if you're in the functional programming world, it's like, okay, you've done enough stuff and you can't think about your program. Oh, when does this thing change? And I was talking with my wife, talking about Jim Kim's, who's talked about it here in his love letter closure. It was like, it's like you have a coffee cup, you pass by reference, that is the coffee cup and you get the coffee cup back. You pass by value, somebody fills up the coffee cup, yours automatically fills up in front of you too. And my wife's like, well, that's kind of nice. You don't have to worry. I'm like, no, that's not. Because then anything in the world can change this. It's only like after you've been bitten by some of this stuff, do you realize, yeah, that sounds nice at first. When I pass by value and we all each share a copy, but when we all each share the same copy, that can cause trouble because like you now under highlight under your book that we've got and it shows up under my book that's written is like, why is this passage now highlight? Did I highlight that? Was that something I thought was important? Oh, wait, nope. Somebody else highlighted it versus each having our own copy of the book and making notes, which don't impact each other and things like that. And so there's a bunch of things. And that's what I was wondering. So a lot of it sounds like the very high level trying to approach it from a declarative. Here's what I would like done. Here's how I'd like to think about this. And here's the data structures I think about my data in, especially for you when you're munging with data all the time. Like, does it make sense to have it this shape or this shape or which, which helps me see patterns in it? But then also the immutability. So were there any other things as you were digging in and you're like, okay, functional programming seems to be the thing. What were the kind of next steps since you saw like, okay, I, I get these ideas, but having the ideas and having this, the job of being, of the ideas being sold to you is easy. Okay, now I have to actually internalize these lessons and understand what this means. I guess we'll start with what were some of the things the community could probably improve on that may not be as clear or even things that you see being asked now in like user groups and stuff when people talk about this stuff that may be more advanced and not helpful to bring in people to the fold. Like once you're in the fold, it's fine to talk about monads. You do not sell monads to a new person. You have to phrase it in terms that they'll understand kind of thing. So I think that probably one of the biggest problems that we have in functional programming, but I think it's probably in programming in general, is how quickly the whole discipline moves and develops and how quickly we expect people to sort of come on board and how much we expect people to absorb very, very quickly, very, very rapidly. And so, as I said, I was in sort of this fortunate position where since this isn't my job per se, I mean, I use it in my job, but I don't have anyone sort of saying we have to deliver something right now. I was able to take a long time to just read and listen and think about these ideas. And I didn't have to pick it up really, really quickly. And so I think there is, I, uh, you know, I hear people sort of talk about and write about what did you really struggle with in functional programming? What was hard for you to understand? And I think by the time I was sort of actually writing code, 
It was more about trying to implement it. There are still high level concepts that I don't really get. And maybe I'll learn them when I need them. But for me, I, th I think a lot of the problem is just that the industry wants you to move really quickly and people also feel that they need to move really quickly. So in the OCaml community, there's lots and lots of discussion about how the tooling could be improved and that you don't have sort of one binary that can sort of do everything and make it really easy for you to get up and running with an OCaml project. I'm sure that does turn people off and the community is working on, on those issues. But as I said, I started running Linux when you had to build your own kernel. <laughs> and so, and you had to track down modules to make your hardware work. So I, I've sort of, I'm used to having to spend a lot of time reading first and, and trying to figure out how it all works. And, and I wish that sort of perspective and mentality was there of this is hard and it's going to take some time and that's okay, right? Learning is difficult. And the idea that I should just be able to like read something, follow some steps and, and I'm up and running. I don't think that's realistic in lots of ways. And so I, I don't know that this is directly answering your question because it's not so much about what the functional programming community could do better, but it's it's a larger problem that I see in the software development world. And again, I may be, I'm probably leading the question here a little bit, but to give an example of one of those things I found, even after being in the functional programming community, was Eric Norman's stuff. People talk about pure functions and total functions and all this stuff. It's like, yes, you try and sell this, but when Eric Norman kind of rephrased it as, you have data, you have calculations, and then you have actions. The actions do stuff. Data just sits there and is essentially inert. Calculations, we all know what a calculation is because you've gone through so many years of math in school. You know what a calculation is. It's the pure functions, and don't worry about pure versus impure or total and what the nuance of those differences means. It's this thing does something. It's an action. There is motion involved in this kind of thing. And that was one of those things. It's like, okay, so... It's, whether or not that fits for everybody, I wasn't sure if, they, if there were certain things like, as you're reading, like, they keep using this word. I'm sure they know what it means. As I'm learning this, they keep talking about this stuff, but, like, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, if you actually think about it and explain it in another way, if there were any of those kind of clear metaphors or explanations that you found over some of the common, more the more common ones that are used everywhere that just, like, you know, if we just changed our terminology a little bit, we might be able to sell this to people without confusing them first and making it think and making it seem unapproachable because like, here's a total function and here's a pure function. You have to like, they're close, but they're not quite the same. And you got to like, these things are important topics where it's like, well, it's functions that do something versus functions that calculate something kind of thing. So I wasn't sure if there were any of those kind of things that you found the community as you were reading, and even as you were taking your time, we're like, if I've looked at a lot of books, this is like the common thing. But like, there are these gold nuggets where if you like just phrase it this way for someone who's not familiar with functional programming, it might actually click a little bit better. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And, and certainly that's something that 
Eric has done very well, I think, in trying to make some of the ideas more accessible. That's also one of Elm's selling points is really trying to be sort of a more human accessible functional programming language. I think one thing that is very, very important, and I, I take this from my work as an academic, is, you know, so we trade in publishing papers, you have to pose a problem, you have to say, here's the problem that you're running into. And here's a solution, right? Or in academia, often it's like, oh, you've got this theory, you've got this theory, they kind of contradict. How do we answer this question? And I think a lot of the functional programming literature dives too quickly into the details. And so this is another thing that Eric Norman has done is he frames functional programming around taming simplicity, right? And a lot of people are turning to functional programming for scalability and managing, I said taming simplicity, I meant taming complexity. <laughs> yes, and lots of people are turning to functional programming for scalability and dealing with very, very large programs. And I think that is very useful and a very useful way of framing things for most people is to say, here's the problem that you're running into, because I've been there too. And this is how this paradigm has helped me. I think that's important. The other thing I would say for me, and I, I, I suspect that this might be true for a number of people as well, is I think that if I had tried, if I sort of learned about the functional paradigm and then said, well, you know, can I do all of this in Python? I think I would have struggled a lot more than choosing a functional programming language. Or as you've already pointed out, and, and the OCaml people themselves point out, it's sort of functional forward because it's a multi-paradigmatic language. but Choosing a language where that is privileged was really important because the language itself guides you into good practices. And I didn't have to sort of try to manage all of that myself. So I think that's another issue because certainly there's a lot since JavaScript, you know, the most popular language in the universe at this point, there's a lot of people working with well, how do you do functional programming in JavaScript? And you can certainly do that, but I certainly would find that harder than picking a language that is more oriented towards FP. Makes sense. Because I can see where it depends on that lens of functional programming. JavaScript? Yes, high order functions. Immutability? Nope, that's on you. You have to remember to make everything immutable and do copy on reads or copy on writes or probably copy on read and write because you never know if the other part of your code is actually doing it too. So you can't trust anything. So it's like, this is extra complicated. Well, yes, it's stuff that you have to take care of that you can do to try and make things simpler. But it also is a lot of work because immutability is not the first class structure that you get in some of the other functional forward languages or things like that. If you're selling like, 
it makes it easier to reason about, well, you got a global object which is still immutable. So as if you had global objects that were immutable and essentially all, they're all constants, constants are easy to reason about, right? Okay. Doesn't matter. Pi is wherever in the code. It doesn't matter because we know pi is not changing. That's the same for all of our variables here. And if it changes, it's really just we redefine pi in the smaller scope because we need either more, more accuracy or less accuracy or something like that. What are the things that as you were picking stuff up that you found was done really well for selling things and making it approachable? So we kind of talked about like, and probably the programming industry in general and just we are not teachers for the most part. We're like, Hey, cool new thing. This is awesome. Use it. Shove it down your throat. And starting with the problem that it solves can be improved across the board and making sure it's a problem solution focused mindset. What are some of the things that you found as you were going through reading books, taking your time that that was done really well, even if it's metaphors to other things you already knew? So I think this isn't exactly answering your question, but one thing that I appreciated about the FP world was that it was a lot smaller. And therefore, it wasn't an avalanche of material to go through. So I was able to sort of look at these different functional programming languages. And I won't remember all that I looked at. Certainly, I looked at a number of the lists because I've never really understood Lisp, and I feel inadequate because of that. And then I was, you know, looking at, I knew Haskell, I had a, um, for my QCA software that was written in Python, I hired a developer to help write the graphical interface. And he was an expert in Qt. And so he wrote that, and, and he did an amazing job. And he then discovered Haskell. And he actually went on to found a Haskell consulting company. And I, th I think that closed shop a little bit and he's doing something else now. We've, we've lost touch. But, you know, things like Haskell were on my radar. I was interested in it. And so I was sort of figuring out, because I'm an academic and because I like to classify things, I was like, okay, we've got this paradigm. What are the different you know, types of functional programming language he languages here. And certainly um, dynamic typing versus static typing was one of the first things that showed up. And so I sort of, you know, I was like, okay, let me think about this more. And I quickly realized that I really liked the Hindley-Milner type inference system. And as I said before, I, I really quickly fell in love with algebraic data types and having a rich type system was very, very attractive. And so sort of as soon as I started playing around with Haskell and OCaml, that became really clear really quickly to me. So I think sort of trying to go back to your question, what does the community do well is one just by its nature of being smaller, is the signal-to-noise ratio is really high. There's a lot of good material out there and not that much bad material. So that's really, really helpful. And then I would also say that the community in general tends to be very, very generous and kind. And people who are interested in functional programming – 
tend to be interested in programming in general, and they often know lots of languages so that they, they can provide comparisons. And that's really useful to be able to say, oh, this is an advantage that OCaml has. Oh, this is something that Haskell has to offer. This is something that Scala offers. And sort of trying to, I, I think that's done pretty well and not in a very sort of like competitive my language is better than yours approach. So that's something that, that I like about the functional programming community in general. And I think they do very well. And then you're drawn to a Henley Milner type system, which seems kind of at odds with, I've got this bunch of data. I have no idea what the real shape is, and I have to munge it into a shape. There seems to be the, that's the appeal that a lot of the dynamic type systems have, where it's like, look, it is still strongly typed, but it is a bag of attributes now kind of thing. Dictionaries all the way down kind of thing. Like, it's a dictionary. It's a bag of attributes. You want to rearrange, restructure, rearrange, restructure, and then maybe you take it into a type system or in, like, the closure world, you spec it and stuff because you're like, nope, this is now a hard system, and this is the stuff I care about. So just kind of curious again, is, and as you play with tables, you're like, oh, I'd put it in this table, but I'd put it in this table, and I put it in this table. Is there a difference you found in the way that you, the type systems allow you to play with data in a way that the dynamic bag of attributes doesn't in the early phase of when you're just trying to figure out like, what kind of data do I even have? Because at a certain point, my understanding is some of those stuff is what data do I even have? Because I don't even know what my types would be without actually understanding and looking deeper into my data to know what data was actually there, it, depending on how the data sets get aggregated. Right. So this is going to be a longer answer. So as I was becoming increasingly dissatisfied with programming in Python for my larger projects, and I started exploring functional programming, and I found OCaml. I also was thinking about, okay, when I rewrite this software, I do want a, a graphical interface for it. Because one of the things, even though I'm a command line junkie and I live in the shell, what I found was with QCA, with qualitative comparative analysis, is the method is very iterative. And, and this is true for all empirical research, but, but it's very foregrounded with QCA, where you run an analysis, you look at the results, and looking at those results, you say, well, that's weird. <laughs> Let me go back and tweak a variable, tweak a parameter, rerun it. Maybe I left out a condition. We tend to use the word condition, not variables. Maybe I left out a condition, or maybe that condition really should be two conditions. And so there's this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth iterative process in QCA having a graphical interface to manage that was really useful. That really helped. And so I realized that when I rewrite my software, I'm sort of doing it in drips and drabs over time, I'm going to want to have a graphical interface to support that process. And one thing that the functional programming languages aren't known for is graphical interfaces. You can do it, but often it's a binding to a purely imperative library or an object-oriented library. 
And so I was also looking for what am I going to do to write this graphical interface in? That led me down the road eventually to Tickle TK. And I realized I really like Tickle TK as well, although it is not functional. It is very, very oriented in the imperative world. There's mutability all over the place, but it's also very simple. It's a very, very simple language to understand. And when I started playing with it, I was able to generate a functional GUI interface like in two days. It was amazing. And so that was very exciting. And so what I realized at this point was so the original developer of Tickle TK, John Oosterhout, he's known for Oosterhout's dichotomy where he had the idea of you want to have a scripting language for your really high level stuff. And then you want to have a system programming language for your low level stuff. And I had read that article a number of times over the years, but then I reread it and it clicked. <laughs> I was like, that's what I need. And I'm going to look at using Tickle TK for some problems. I'm going to look at using it for my interfaces, but I'm going to be using OCaml to do sort of the heavy lifting. The stuff that I use OCaml for is not... So I'll write software that will then conduct an empirical analysis. But often what I'm using OCaml for and what I'm using the type system for is to think about the concepts that I'm working with methodologically. And I use the type system to help me work through my logic here. And this has been really a godsend. And one of the things I hate about Tickle TK is that when I hit save in Emacs, it doesn't show me all the errors that I have, right? All the, all the type errors that I've made. I've really come to rely upon that. Sometimes it's for just minor errors. So it's, I remember there was a problem. I don't know, this was a number, this was pre-pandemic because I was working on this problem inside a coffee shop. And Emacs kept telling me, no, there's an error here, there's an error here, and I couldn't figure it out. And I finally figured it out. And it was basically that I had sort of, when I was writing the code, I had confused the actual data structure with the representation of the data structure, but I had named those things too similarly. And so I couldn't see it, but the compiler kept telling me, you're being stupid, Claude. You're being stupid. There's a mistake here. And finally, I was like, oh, I'm an idiot. So there are those minor things that, you know, are really useful. But then I also use the type system to really work through my reasoning. And an example here would be that I've got a project right now with a colleague where we're talking about the process of measurement in QCA. And the issue with QCA is, as I said, it's a, it's a Boolean technique. I use a set theory fundamentally. When you construct a measure to be used in QCA, when you're constructing your data set for QCA, you need to construct meaningful measures. 
So we're not interested in simply variation, but what what does the value mean? And so we use fuzzy sets, first order fuzzy sets. Everything is scaled on a range of zero to one, where one is representing you're fully in the set. You fully express whatever thing you're trying to measure. Zero means you're out of the set, right? So one might be you're rich. Zero means you're not rich. And then anything in between is anything above 0.5 is you're more more rich than not. Anything below is you're not that rich. And so my co-author and I have been working going on two years now on this project, I guess, trying to sort of think about and talk about how to do measurement in QCA well. Because it's a very difficult aspect of conducting QCA. And so we've had lots of sort of philosophical discussions about what is involved in measurement and what are the different components of it. And my inclination is I'll take these ideas and then I'll open up Emacs and I'll start writing out some OCaml code to try to puzzle through this. And one of the nice things in OCaml is that you can just write your interfaces file and it will type check as well. So I don't actually have to write any code. I'm just writing out type signatures. And so we were struggling with an issue essentially about how to make your data semantically meaningful and what that process was. And I had really gotten sort of tripped up on the idea that with quantitative data, you always have to have some type of transformation. Right. So you have some measure. If we use income, then you have to figure out, okay, what does it mean? What level of income does it mean that you're rich? Right. What level of income does it mean that you're not rich? And what's the range in between there? And so you always have this sort of transformation going on. With qualitative research, often you can go straight to this is in the set. This is mostly in the set. This is mostly out. You don't have that transformation. You just go straight there. And so I was like, well, these aren't the same things. <laughs> and so I'm trying to figure out, like, what's going on here? So I start putting that into OCaml and sort of working through how can I map this whole process out? What are the different steps? And as I'm sort of working through it, I'm finding it very complicated to do. And I was able to get it to work, but I think one of the implementations implementations that sort of would type check, I had mutually recursive types, and it was just convoluted. And I was like, this doesn't feel right. (laughs) And finally, I realized that one of the assumptions I made was wrong, that with qualitative research, you're not directly going to what is semantically meaningful it's just implicit. And especially because qualitative researchers often know their subjects, know their data, know their theory so well, they're able to very quickly say, yeah, that person's rich. Yeah, that's a democracy. That's a case of war. And that's not a case of war. Whatever it is, they're able to sort of do that. If you push them on it, you can figure out what's sort of the raw data and how are they making that translation. But I didn't see that at first. And finally, I recognized, oh, I do that myself all the time. 
And that was part of the problem is I would immediately go, I would look at some, some phenomenon, and I would immediately code up fuzzy sets. I would say, oh, that's a one, that's a 0.9, that's a 0.6, that's a 0.2, that's a zero. And I would do that so quickly because I knew what I was doing. And so I didn't realize that there was a translation process going on there. And so once I figured that out, I split it out and I was able to then write out this type signature, this interface file that type checked and it was simple and elegant. And I learned a lot about sort of the measurement process there, sort of the ontology of measurement. And this idea has now become more part of, it, it's a little bit before what this project that my co-author and I are working on, on, on the calibration process, the measurement process in QCA, but it was necessary for us to sort of understand that. It was certainly necessary for me to understand that. And I think just thinking through it on my own, I wouldn't necessarily see where there were logical contradictions. And I think that's one of the issues that sort of happens with dynamically typed programming languages is you don't necessarily see where there are these logical contradictions, but the type checker in OCaml helps me see that and helps me figure that out. So it sounds more like the process part of the QCA things than the raw data you're feeding in and trying to get the raw data into the sheet. Sounds like for the raw data... You still use the dynamic stuff with the tickle where you're visualizing and playing with things, but the actual process of now I'm going to run this through QCA and here's the algorithm that does the QCA stuff. That part is more well-defined and becomes something that you do types. Whereas like that's the part of the software that you've got in the ML and then the data stuff, you're still playing with the data side being like, mm, is this part of this set or is this part of a different set or is it part of both or something like that? becomes a little bit more of that abstract play with, I don't have types around that necessarily. I'm trying to derive the types from that of it's a set of X versus it's it's the set of Y. But once I have those sets defined, then I can run it through. And that's where the type system really helps then. Yeah, that's right. So I would say when I wrote my, well, second implementation of QCA, in Python, I learned a lot <laughs> about how Python works. Rewriting it in OCaml, I have learned a ton. And it's really, really interesting that all of a sudden, I'm able to solve problems that I haven't been able to solve before. And a lot of this has to do with the type system, with the idea that you're really encouraged to write sort of good, clean functions that stand on their own. And that helps me sort of think through lots of little problems that sort of I've seen for years, but didn't have a really good solution for. And so that's been very, very helpful. And so, yeah, sort of I'm working in OCaml as a way of furthering my understanding of how to do QCA and how to do it well. For the actual analysis, you're right. So I'll have, you know, I've got some shell scripts written in OCaml. And here for inputting the data, I basically want it untyped, right? So it's going to be, you know, basically it's going to be either zero to one or missing. 
sometimes there are strings in there. And so I write the software so it can handle strings. But basically, yeah, the data itself comes in essentially untyped along the way. And sometimes I'm doing that in TickleTK. Sometimes I'm doing that in OCaml. I'm still using R and that's fine for sort of this interactive use. But yeah, so I, I wouldn't say I'm sort of doing analysis in OCaml. I'm using OCaml to write software that lets me do the analysis in the way that I think it should be done. <laughs> Makes sense. We're coming up on time. I don't want to keep you forever, but I do want to make sure we touch on your Houston functional programming user group that you've taken the charge of now. Do you want to share some details about it, what you've learned? Pitch it, because I know you're doing virtual for a while. Maybe ask for any speakers. I don't know. This is your chance to kind of like, let's touch on some of the things you've taken away now that you are putting that together and corralling the group as the main organizer now. Yeah, yeah. So I, I um, took over organizing the group after previous leader stepped down. And I didn't want to do it <laughs> at first. And I, I told her, I was like, well, you know, I can, I can do it on a temporary basis, you know, until we find a permanent organizer. And she was like, no, no, you, you should just do it. And I did feel like I might not be the right person because in the group, I, I'm, I'm definitely the dumbest person. Like I know the least about functional programming. I ask a number of, you know, sort of, you know, ignorant questions and, and, you know, everyone's really nice about it, but I was concerned that I wasn't the right person to organize this group. But she asked me, yeah, you know, I think you should do it. And I said, okay, fine. Yeah. I've, I've organized groups before and I, I like that. I think it's an important thing to do. And it's a great group of people. There's a diversity of languages. People are really smart. Um, we got people who are working in the industry and working with functional programming. We have hobbyists. And so it's, it's super fun. And then once the pandemic hit, we like, you know, the rest of the world went virtual. And that's been really nice because we have been able to have speakers from around the world, including you. And actually, a bunch of people who I first heard on your podcast, I invited them. I was like, oh, you know, they seem nice and they're obviously willing to talk. So I emailed them and they, they, they showed up as well. And so that's been really fun. And then it also opens the door to people from outside of Houston to attend. And we've grown our numbers a bit that way. And, and so that's been really fun. I think, you know, we're totally virtual now. I have an expectation that we're probably, even when we start resuming in-person meetings, whenever that might happen, that we'll probably stick to a hybrid format because we've really enjoyed getting speakers from all over the place and with a range of perspectives. I am always looking for speakers. And so if you're interested in speaking, you should contact me you know, look up the Houston Functional Programming Users Group. And I would say that one of the things that I've learned in organizing this group is, and the happy hours that I organized back in Tucson, is how fragile these groups are. And so when I left Tucson to move to Houston, 
it was within a matter of weeks or months that the happy hours died because there wasn't someone who was just, hey, we're going to do this. And that's all it was, was, hey, we're going to be here on you know Thursday night and join us. And people would do that. With the Houston functional programmers, I've sort of been interested in, in watching, you know, we have sort of a core group of people who show up every time, regardless of the topic. And then there are other people who show up only if the topic is interesting to them. And that makes sense. We've known for a long time that if you have an introduction to some language or something, you, you get more people showing up because they're like, oh, you know, it's an introduction. And so that's interesting. But I've sort of been paying a, trying to pay a lot of attention to what are the issues that lead people to sort of drop out of a group or what keeps them coming back? Because for me, I just sort of like hanging out with other people who do programming and talk about programming because I don't get to do that in my daily, daily life. So that's super fun for me. But I have learned that for a lot of people, they have to know that they're going to come and learn something. And, and that's really important. But just sort of showing up sort of, well, you know, we don't know what the topic is, is going to be or if there will be a topic. That, that doesn't work for a lot of people. There needs to be some justification for going. And so I, I'm trying to work with that a little bit to provide an opportunity, a reason for people to come. I think that's important because once they're there, in general, I think, you know, we have really good discussions and people are likely to come back. So I pay attention to that. I think a number of people have said this, and I don't think I appreciated it. So as I was saying, like, I was intimidated by the idea of organizing this group because our previous organizer, wicked smart, if someone dropped out at the last minute, she could just sort of stand up and give a presentation and it was wonderful. And I was like, I can't do that. <laughs> I don't, I don't feel comfortable doing that. And so I get the idea that people might be intimidated by gi giving a presentation. And, but what I've seen at this group and, and other groups I've been part of is it really doesn't need to be that scary. We make it scarier for ourselves because the people are so nice and people are so interested in what you have to say. So if you have any sort of like, oh, this was something I learned and I want to share it with you. That's great. That's really great. And it doesn't have to be like this super refined professional talk. It can be, this is what I learned. And the audience is going to be very receptive to that. And you don't even have to understand all of it. If someone asks you a question that you don't know, it's perfectly fine to say, I don't know what you're talking about, because then they'll jump in and explain it for you. Right. And so it, it can be super useful to do that. And so one thing I am trying to do with the group is really encourage lots of people to give presentations, even if that's just a five, 10 minute thing on like, oh, this is something I learned or this is a book that I like or something like that. I think that participation is, is really, really useful. And you don't have to be some great expert to do that. Sounds great. Is there anything else you want to call out? You mentioned a call to action for probably just sounded like presenting at your local user group, wherever you are yourself, or reaching out to Claude for presenting there, maybe even starting one. 
and just getting that organization to say, hey, we're going to meet here to discuss something. Is there anything else you want to plug, promote, call to action for people while we got you and you have an audience? Yeah. So I, I should also plug OCaml Cafe, which is another user group that I started. It's completely virtual and it meets kind of sporadically. Right now we're meeting about every other month. You can find us on Meetup, which isn't my favorite, but it's fine. And this came out of Houston Functional Programmers. We hosted a talk by an OCaml developer. And then there were just tons of questions, sort of introductory level questions about OCaml. And I said, oh, there's a need for this. And so I got together with some of the other OCaml developers, people, again, way smarter than I am and who understand the language far better than I ever will. And we started yeah, organizing these online meetings you know, about every other month. And we'll send out a little call and we'll usually have a little talk first. And then we just open it up for whatever OCaml questions you have. And then we do our best to try to answer them or point you in the right direction. And so that's been really fun. I need to set up a, our next meeting for that, actually, sometime in February. So you can look for that. I guess the other thing I will say for all the program language designers out there is we didn't talk too much about sort of why I ended up leaving Python. But one of the reasons was the constant churn in the language. There is often such interest in adding new features and extending the language. That is very exciting to do. For me, again, as someone who does part-time programming, it's very overwhelming as well. And I really wish that programming language designers would pay much more attention to stability and backwards compatibility instead of sort of chasing the new thing. Because it's very, very frustrating to return to a program that you worked on a couple years ago, and all of a sudden, it doesn't run anymore. And trying to figure out how to fix it. That's very, very frustrating. And, and one of the things, again, that I really, really appreciate about OCaml and TickleTK is I can go back and find a script online that was written like 20 years ago, and it'll run. And that is really, really nice. And so I really appreciate that. And I, I would very much sort of as a broader call for um, programming language designers and programming language communities is to really think about stability because I think they're probably right. The community of people right near you who are really sort of invested in the language day to day. Yeah, they're going to be interested in, you know, adding new features and they're going to be able to keep up with all the new features. But those of us who are sort of coming and going and on sort of the margins in lots of ways. That can be very, very confusing. And it's very frustrating when software that was working no longer works. So I guess that's the other thing I would say about what drew me to, in particular, OCaml, was this emphasis on stability. That that was very, very attractive for me. 
And then where can people find you online and follow along and keep up to date? I am terrible about having an online presence. I don't have a Twitter account. You can search for my name and you'll find me. So Claude Rubinson, that's R-U. And you can email me. I actually do have a couple of Twitter accounts for things like the Functional Programming Group. But email and websites <laughs> are where, where to find me. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, not that social of a sociologist. Well, that works. I'll get those links added and the links to the user groups so they can at least track you down by attending a user group that you're hosting if they want to uh, follow along. So I'll get those added to the show notes. That'd be great. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Claude, for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you, as always, when I managed to get to those user groups. But actually enjoyed digging in and getting more of your background and seeing your more of your full journey than just the brief synopsis we kind of touch on and stuff. So thank you for taking your time to join me today. No, thank you. This was this was a lot of fun. And I'm glad that, that the podcast is back. Thank you. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.